From the conversation, this is Speaking With. I'm Justin Bergman. Anita Heiss is one of the most prolific writers documenting a range of Aboriginal experiences in Australia today through nonfiction, historical fiction, poetry, and children's literature. Her memoir, Am I Black Enough for You, was a finalist in the 2012 Human Rights Awards. For her latest book, Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia, Heiss traded the role of writer for editor. The anthology includes 52 essays from First Nations writers spanning the breadth of society, from rural to urban, young to old, well-known authors to emerging writers. There's even an essay by an opera singer, Don Bemrose, about his experience as what she calls a double minority. He's both Aboriginal and gay. And the result is a collection of stories that speaks to the strength of Aboriginal identity in Australia today, as well as the diversity of voices in the long marginalized Aboriginal literary community. For this episode of Speaking With, Professor Jacinta Elston, a pro-vice chancellor at Monash University with a background in indigenous health, higher education, and public health, spoke with Anita Heiss. The interview took place after Heiss's talk at the Melbourne Writers' Festival, so that's why there's a little background noise. I'd like to start and acknowledge traditional owners, the Boomerang and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We're here on their land today in Melbourne. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge that during this conversation today, we might talk about people who have passed away or who've lost um, people who are mentioned in the stories even. And so I pay my respects to people and just let people know that in advance. I'm here talking with Anita Heiss and uh, and we're talking about her book, The... um, recently brought out, Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia. And Anita, um, this book is a bit of a style, it's, as a style, it's a bit of a departure from previous work that you've done. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to start by saying, Yiridu Murang, Yundu Yanadahais, Bala Dua Rajri Gilang, Arambiji Bu, Brungli Bu, Miagandi Bala Williams. And I pay my respects to traditional owners of country here where we are in Melbourne today. So I've basically said, G'day, in Wiradjuri, um, I'm Anita Heiss, I'm uh, Wiradjuri, I belong, I have Wiradjuri belonging, and I'm from Arambi Mission and Brungle Mission, and I'm a Williams, just so our listeners are aware of who I am, uh, because my story doesn't appear in, in the anthology. And so, yeah, it is a departure. It's a great question, because I my background, largely in the most in the, in the last decade, has been writing what some people call chiclet or chocolate, um, and commercial women's fiction, and writing mm. about relationships relationships and weaving social justice and so forth through fiction. So the anthology is a great departure because it's not my work. I have just been the facilitator of other people's being able to tell their stories in this fantastic anthology growing up Aboriginal in Australia. And what it is, is is it's 52 separate stories from people across nations, from Nukunu to Noongar, from Western Aranda to Wiradjuri, from Gam, uh, Gambangir to Gandajamara and everywhere in between. So coastal regions, remote areas, rural towns and urban centres. Um, we've got uh, we had 120 submissions, narrowed down to 52, which we will talk about at some point today. Um, our eldest contributor was in her 70s, an auntie, Norlene Brinkwood from uh, Brinkworth from Yarrabah. 
count past outside of Cairns. And our youngest was a 13-year-old girl, Taryn Little, from inner west of Sydney. Wonderful. She's now turned 14 and I've since met her, which is great. We have over 52... So out of the 52, over 50% of our contributors were female. This was not by design either, just as it turned out. We had a young man incarcerated in South Australia who had someone facilitate his story being told from from outside, which is fantastic. And so basically we have an anthology, which is, I think, for the first time, having our mob telling our stories in our diverse voices and driving the conversation now about what it means to be Aboriginal and what it means to have grown up Aboriginal in Australia. And Anita, some of your contributors in the anthology are really well known to us, particularly the Aboriginal mob of Australia, um, and others are not. Tell me about that. So, you know, it's very diverse, as you say, from people all over different ages. You just haven't picked the same individuals who we've been hearing from. This is true. And, and and that was by design in terms of we did invite some contributors so that we would have all these new emerging writers and, and some and po- quite possibly one-time authors um, sit alongside some of our more our more most esteemed uh, literary mm. writers like Tony Birch. We've got um, we've got opera singer Deborah Cheatham in there who's got a fantastic story about singing the anthem, which of course is an is a topic of discussion amongst our communities. Um, a lot around January 26th, but generally we've got Amberlyn Quamalina, who's a, a YA writer, very well known um, in that sector. We asked Jared Thomas, who's done the uh, Paddy Mills books most recently, but a novelist in his own right, for, who's Nukunu from South Australia, but also journalists like Amy Maguire and Jack Lattimore and Celeste Little, who bring a different voice and flavour um, to the anthology as well. And we've got people like um, Adam Goods, so particularly for the Victorian audiences who are fans of, you know, the Brownlow medalist, mm. it's good for them when they read his story to understand and for young people when they read his story to understand that he didn't always want to be an AFL player. As a young person, he wanted to be Michael Jordan. And I, so some of the messages within the anthology also is about role modelling and, and heroes and who are our heroes um, and that it, for young people to understand, for young people, black and white, to understand that what they want to be when they're 13 may not be what they are when they get older. Like, I, I wanted to be Ginger from Gilligan's Island when I was a child and I had no idea I was going to be a full-time writer, as it were. So I think that there's, there's lots of positive uh, influence throughout the anthology as well. So let's get to some of those stories and some of those messages. Um, you've, um, I think what, one of the things that we've seen the reviewers of the book have, have said is that there is quite a lot of hope, there's inspiration and hope, particularly from some of those younger um, authors. Did you feel the same way about the messages and you know, what's come through? I'm really pleased. I'm really pleased that people who have read the work have... have found that as well because particularly with Taryn Little's piece I, I, I just felt I felt positive and, ho- and, and absolutely hopeful for the future and I think um, there are a number of challenging many of the stories are challenging 
many readers will be impacted on emotionally when they, when they, they, may, they will be reading things that they've never heard before or read before on the page and they will have to put the book down and walk away and come back and I know that because people are tweeting me from around the country mm. telling me that's what they've mm. had to do but at the same time they will find hope in stories like um, like Tara Niddles they will find motivation and inspiration in stories like Patrick Johnson who's a former Olympian and a role model and really positive um, mentor uh, and Adam's work as well. Um, and I think there's a, there's a good balance. There is a balance between what is challenging, what is emotionally um, difficult for people to engage with, but also throughout the anthology, people will find any, a lot of humour and warmth. Mm. And I, I can say, having read all of the contributions that came in, that I believe that every single contributor believed themselves that by sharing their story that they could help make a difference. Mm. And that's, what, that's, that's why we have published this. Let's change the dialogue. Let's assist teachers in the classroom. Let's give young Australians today um, a, a, a resource to help them, a tool, as it were, to understand what it means to grow up, in Aboriginal, grow up Aboriginal in Australia, not just today, but as I say, we've got um, uh, Annie Norlene, who is 70 years old, and she was writing about growing up back in the day. So over history, what has changed and unfortunately what hasn't changed, which is things like racism in the classroom, which is a common theme throughout the anthology. So tell me, um, what do you think this says overall, this piece of work says overall about identity and the state of affairs in you know, Indigenous Australia at the moment? I think um, if I look back to you know twenty years ago where we didn't have we didn't have as many many published voices at all, and what I'm seeing in this anthology is strength in identity, pride in identity, understanding or an awareness that identity is often attached to or always attached to family and country and so forth. But we're in a time now which was different to my mother's time where there, there was no right to a voice, no platform to publish, no, you know, she grew up under the act of protection, as it were. So we're in a, we're in a space now where we are um, capable, given a platform, allowed, strong and supportive of each other. And what is interesting about this anthology is what comes across is this absolute obsession that non-Indigenous Australians have with our identity, this mm. preoccupation with trying to understand, with throwing out challenges all the time. You don't look Aboriginal. Are you Aboriginal? Which part of you is Aboriginal? Why are Aboriginals angry? You know, you're, or, or you go to university. Gee, you're, you're, that's really good for an Aborigine. Like all these things, stereotypes that they have in their in their minds. I mean, all those things are still current. And the idea, I, what I found with this anthology is that we are more we are more um, capable of having those arguments today because more of us are having them together and there's solidarity, there's unity in that in that experience. And I think there's a uh, Tamika Worrell is the last is the last contributor in that anthology. We've gone alphabetically because it was just the most politically easy thing to do. And she lists off about ten different key phrases that all of us have heard at some point in our lives and um, I've heard all of them and then Celeste Little had said on a panel at the Melbourne Writers Festival that she goes, oh, I've heard all those this week. So the reality is we are at a time where those sort of stereotypes still exist but we, are, we, we have resources to counteract, to counter those. Mm -hmm. And I always say to young people who say, what do you say if somebody says to me, but you're not really an Aborigine? And it took me a long time to learn in my own journey that, you, that you, we don't have to respond to anybody. 
Mm. I'm not answerable to mm. anybody but my elders. Mm. And so now it's just like we just give people a book. It's, it's coming up, it's their birthday. This is the sort of book you give your racist uncle. So here you go. Uh, and interestingly, it's all non-fiction. And the stats are something like the 80% of fiction is read by women. And men generally read non-fiction, so I'll be interested as time goes on. So the book's been out, came out in April 2018. X amount of months later, five months later, or whatever, we've we've sold about five and a half thousand copies, which is a big chunk of books in an Australian market. And what it tells me is that people are ready to engage, and they're ready to hear our stories told our ways in our voices. And and I'm really positive enough. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have participated in this process of pulling this together if I didn't believe that this would make a difference. Let's go on and talk a little bit about one of the contributions. I'd mm-hmm. like to ask about um, Alice Ether and the contribution she makes. When you read um, the foreword that you've written, you speak about Alice and her contribution as being a legacy to inspire others. And reading her story again, I, I heard exactly what you said in that I think a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people would read these stories and there will be elements of a story that speak to them and their own personal experiences. And Alice um, talks of mental health and isolation and vulnerability and I think her story is very powerful and will we'll talk to many people. But tell me about how you feel that inspiration and the legacy ties together with Alice. So Alice Ether was an extraordinary woman. She was a bilingual school teacher, an activist, a linguist and um, a very talented, unifying poet in a landscape, in this Australian landscape that desperately needs unifying. And I was reading her, she has a a non-Aboriginal father and an Aboriginal mother. So she was born in Brisbane but family, Aboriginal family from Maningrida and so she had lived her life travelling around. She talks about this, you know, this uh, between two worlds sort of existence and, and managing that throughout her life. Um, I was reading her story on Gubby Gubby Country when, it, when, when I was going through all the submissions and was really touched by it because many of us have a bicultural upbringing. You know, my father was Austrian, my mother Aboriginal and so forth, and there's a number of, a number of contributors that talk about that in, in the anthology. Um, but I was contacted by her family literally hours after reading her story to say that she had taken her own life, but they wanted, they wanted her, her words and her message to be her legacy. And, um, and she talks about, she has this extraordinary poem, which we'll share in a minute. She has an extraordinary poem um, that is also done as a video. And it speaks of needing to be unified, straddling two worlds, but needing to come together in peace and so forth. And on the day of her funeral in Brisbane, I sat in, I was in Alice Springs with Lisa Carmichael and we sat in the riverbank of the, Todd, the dry Todd River and we lit some candles and recited the poem um, because, and I do believe her legacy is, is, is one of unity. Yeah. I did want to say also that the anthology is dedicated to Alice but also to all those we've lost too early and I think uh, I know like suicide is is a, a, a thread a theme that comes up in the anthology and I think that will be one of the most challenging aspects of reading it for non-indigenous people you know we all go to funerals very very young in our lives and I have friends that went to their first funeral non-indigenous friends went to their first funeral in their 30s when my father died and I think what what the anthology does through stories like Alice's is actually demonstrate how we are forced to be resilient at a very young age and that 
um, racism, uh, racism particularly around identity, does have an impact and it does cause depression and in some cases it does lead to suicide, which is a bigger issue for all of Australia, not just us, but when you look at the statistics around our people and suicide, um, we have to hope that and believe that, that Alice's words and legacy will help to, to lower those rates and, and provide support for young people who feel like she does. Mm. Let's read the poem. I'm going to read Alice's poem and I'm going, making apologies for any um, language translation uh, errors that I make, but I, I, I read it with respect. Kuya Karibura. I'm standing by this fire, the embers smoking, the ashes glowing, the coals weighing us down. The youth are buried in the rubble, my eyes are burning and through my nostrils the smoke is stirring. I breathe it in. Yuyu Karibura. I wear a ship on my wrist that shows my blood comes from convicts on the second fleet. My father's forefathers came, whipped, beaten and bound in chains. The dark tone in my skin, the brown in my eyes, sunset to sunrise. My moronal mother's side. My kika grew up in a dugout canoe. In her womb is where my conscience grew. Yuyu Karabura. I walk between these two worlds, a split life, split skin, split tongue, split kin. Every day these worlds collide and I'm living and breathing this story of black and white. Sitting in the middle of this collision, my mission is to bring two divided worlds to sit beside this fire and listen. Through this skin, I know where I belong. It is both my centre and my division. Yuya Karabura. My ancestors dance in the stars and their tongues are in the flames and they tell me, you have to keep the fire alive between the black and the white. There's a story waiting to be spoken. In every life, there's a spirit waiting to be broken. Now I'm looking at you with stars in my eyes and my tongue is burning flames and I say, Yuya Karabura. The sacred songs are still being sung but the words are slowly fading. The distant cries I'm hearing are the mothers bearing their babies. The elders are standing strong but the ground beneath them is breaking. Yuya Karabura. Now I welcome you to sit beside my fire. I'm allowing you to digest my confusion. I will not point my finger and blame because when we start blaming each other, we make no room for changing each other. We've got to keep this fire burning with ash on our feet and coal in our hands. Teach Bara Rajuba, all them young ones, how to live side by side because tomorrow when the sun rises and our fires have gone quiet, they will be the ones to reignite it. Yuya Karabura. These flames, us, will be their guidance. Oh, that's very powerful. It's absolutely a, a critical issue in Australia, the mental health issues that we're facing for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population. And as I say, when I read Alice's story, it certainly spoke to me of people and experiences that I have, family that I know, so I know that that legacy will continue on. Yes. You said, you've said during the interview so far that you know, you can see this being used by school students, you can see it being used, uh, hopefully, by men uh, reading it, the, the non-fiction readers. Um, how, how is this book going to get out there? How are we, what role can we play in helping to kind of spread this word? Really good question. Well, the book was actually designed for a school audience, years 9 to year 12, um, as, a, as a resource, as a, as a reference point in the classroom. I also believe that teachers will find it a, a, an enormous support in their own professional development. And I'm pleased to say that I'm speaking to 600 staff, non-academic staff at Melbourne University 
in coming weeks and every single one of those staff members will get a copy of the anthology, mm. which is a great commitment by the uni to support their staff in having a better understanding of working with Indigenous students on their campuses. Um, teachers, there's teachers' notes available downloadable for free from the Black Ink website. And I've, I've said to people, you don't have to be a teacher to download those questions, just to unpack some of the things yourself. Um, if you, I've been tweeted from people around the country, but even internationally. So I had somebody on a train in Japan, an educator from a university in Japan, saying, I'm reading, I'm reading these stories and these are the ones that speak to me. And I believe that it's, you know, lay readers, people who are generally interested in improving their, their own understanding or interested in Indigenous experiences and Indigenous voices generally will go and buy this book. We've gone into reprint as I say, a number of times now, which is telling me that people are reading it. And it's not about numbers, except that it, it's a gauge of how far it's moving, how far and wide it's moving. I'd love to see book clubs talking about this amongst themselves, um, maybe getting some of the contributors to Skype in or visit and so forth. And um, that's an easy thing to do. So and if you are listening to this, make sure your local library has it, make sure your children's school library has it, make sure your academic institution has it as well. And I, I say to people, you don't have to go and buy the book, just go and make sure that your local library has multiple copies that people can access and so forth. Anita, uh, we're probably coming to the close, I'm, I'm sure, in terms of your time today, but, um, and, I, and I know it's not fair to ask you, but you know, in, in amongst 52 um, amazing and powerful stories. I'm not going to ask you if you have a favourite, but I am going to ask you if there's one that speaks to you more than others um, and why it does. It is, that is an unfair question. And writers get questions like that all the time. What's your favourite book and so forth? And it's really hard to choose one. And um, But there is one in particular that I think is very clever uh, in the way it, it, it's executed, and it's called Dear Australia, and it's by a gentleman called Don Bemrose, and he's actually an opera singer um, based in Canberra at the moment. It was the first time he'd written anything, which I found quite extraordinary because it's, it's a brilliant piece of writing. He uses irony in a letter that he writes apologising to Australia for not being the kind of Aboriginal person that others expect him to be. And we all know this experience where you're expected to sing and dance and speak language and look a certain way. Now, through his letter, he challenges white people's stereotypes of him personally. Uh, he doesn't live in a remote area. He doesn't do dot painting and he doesn't play football. He's an opera star and he talks about being this double minority because he's black and he's gay. And he goes on to ask forgiveness in failing in his suicide attempt. So he's raised that as well. As I say, he's, he raises that. And it's, it's an experience that many Aboriginal people and many Aboriginal families have had growing up. And it's a reality, as we say, that many non-Indigenous Australians may not understand without reading personal testimonies in this collection. So I really value his use of irony. I think it's a great use and teachers can use this in the classroom and, and get students to unpack that and perhaps even write their own pieces, but also raising the issue through not only not fitting the stereotypes, um, raising the issue of suicide. And I know that's a really dark issue, but this is the reality for our people that readers need to understand. And I think that Celeste Little writes in her, in her contribution about she doesn't know whether she'll truly grow up as an Aboriginal person until Australia grows up Aboriginal as well. And I think this is the sort of story and this is the sort of anthology that can help Australia do that. Anita, um, I think in closing, um, 
I'd just like to say how much I've enjoyed this discussion today and I hope that everybody who's listening to us um, also enjoys it. Um, just, you know, to be here on the land of the Kulin Nations with a fantastic and inspiring Aboriginal woman in the year of the NAIDOC theme, Because of Her We Can, with a collection of stories from, you know, a large majority of Indigenous women, or at least 50%, I think you said, um, and bringing to, you know, the tables of everyday Australians you know, to classrooms, the voices of Indigenous people telling some of the realities that are really difficult and that's powerful. And I just congratulate you and the contributors and um, look forward to seeing where you go with this and, and where it goes and where we see it. Thank you.